This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Real estate. Uh, And this has obviously been a hot-button issue, not just in Ontario, but right across the country. Uh, In light of the fact that over the weekend, a new poll release suggests that upper and middle and lower income Canadians, all of them, are worried about rising housing prices. Uh, The numbers indicate that two in five Canadians believe that housing is no longer affordable for them. Well, what's to be done about this? How can governments react? Should they even react or just let the market handle itself? Tim Hudak is the CEO of the Ontario Real Estate Association, and he joins us here in studio to talk about this. Good morning. Good to have you with us face to face. Good to see you live and in person again, too. How was your weekend? You know, it was fabulous. Uh, It was... um be a bit personal here. It was my first in 21 years as a civilian. <laughs> After 21 years as MP, which is always great. People are in good moods, but you run around in a big circuit. So this was purely family. I took my daughters, Miller and Maitland, with my wife, Debbie, to Pelham for their Canada Day celebrations, and then the fireworks in Jordan Harbor there on the south shore of Lake Ontario that night. So it was glorious. Thank you. Nice, nice. And you can even turn the cell phone off from time to time. From time to time, not always. <laughs> exactly. Just don't tell my realtor members oh, no, that. No, no. They're they're plugged in twenty four seven. Well, I got to tell you something. Tim's been here for about twenty five thirty minutes ago. He's been on Twitter. I don't know what you've been on, but I mean, you're working, okay? So he's he's on the clock here right now, gang. If you're listening, uh, the other realtors out there, what's what's going on with the market right now? I mean, you've tried to keep us posted of of, of some of the trends that have happened here. Let's. I want, I want to talk about a couple of different issues here. Uh, one, if of course, is uh, the basis of my blog today is about you know the government needs to do more about affordable housing. The other is about affordability, and and they may sound like they're the same issue, but they're not really because there's a couple of different things going on in the market. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to separate out the short term from the long term, and I think in the short term, I'm glad to go into more detail. I think there's a bit of a, a breather happening compared to the intensity from the springtime when it comes to housing prices. But long run, uh, Bill, I think the biggest issue is making sure we get more housing supply, all the things that are driving up demand, low mortgage rates, millennials who want to get out of their their home, the fact that the Hamilton-Toronto economy is stronger than the rest of Canada. All those things are not changing, and that means we're going to have a bigger demand that's going to come back for housing in this area. And I think the biggest solution is making sure we have more housing supply so that dream of home ownership stays within reach of the next generation. All right. And, and I don't want to suggest that affordable housing and afford- affordability are, are mutually exclusive because they're not. Uh, there, there are some ties here. But when we talk about this study that's done here, and, and the majority of people, of course, that are what they call middle to low income, uh, that's to do with affordable housing. And, and I'm not trying to pass the buck here from all, all the municipalities, but, I mean, this is really in the end of the wheelhouse of federal and provincial governments to step up. This is a role they have to have a part in. Yeah, absolutely. And, in fact, I think you can make the argument that it's been a lot of government interference that have made it much more expensive to own a home. By that, I mean there's been a lot of uh, rules over time that have compounded that have limited housing supply and also limited housing choice in the marketplace. The reality is that back about uh, 10 years ago, there were over 17,000 new homes that came onto the market in a given uh, month. Uh, and then compared to today, because of restrictions, it was down under 1,000. A lot more people looking for housing. That's a good thing. People want to move here. They want to live here in the Hamilton, GTA, Niagara. That's all good. We've not built enough housing supply to keep up with it. We did a recent survey. We had a summit a couple of weeks ago along with the Ontario Home Builders and those that provide rental housing in the province. And no surprise to you, Bill, we found that over 80% of Ontarians say that this will be a big election issue in June of 2018. Well, I mean, rule one for everybody is they want a roof over their head. That's what it comes down to. And and there are a lot of people right now that are on low income for a variety of reasons. Uh, some, of course, have had to, to leave jobs or were told to leave jobs, and, and they're in a, a more precarious financial situation, but they still need a roof over their house right now. Uh, and the government has, for years now, as, as you know, Tim, because you know that's that was where you were for years in Queens Park, uh, petitioning the federal government to develop a national strategy. We're the only G eight nation that doesn't have that. I mean, uh, all the they're just talking about you know, all these prime ministers and presidents meeting in just a couple of days right now. We're lagging behind in this, and we just don't seem to understand that this is a crisis situation. Yeah, it is, and I mean, it shows that one arm of government does know what the other is doing. So look at immigration, for example. We attract over three hundred thousand people per year into Canada, the vast majority of whom will settle here in Ontario in the Greater Golden Horseshoe. So one hand, the government is doing that, but the other hand is not ensuring that we have enough housing. And one of the driving values of new Canadians, even more than existing Canadians, is they want to own a home. As you said, some see it as as a right, some say it's a place of roof over our heads, but it's also a smart, long-term investment. 
New Canadians get that. We just don't have enough housing supply. So how do we solve this? And again, I'm not going to simply say, well, this is an easy solution. The government just has to throw a lot more money at it. It's more complex than that. So, you know, we've been very fortunate. We we have had the ear of government. There are about 16 different meetings that uh, the uh, realtors and I had with uh, Premier Wynne, our finance minister, and other government officials. Uh, we basically, we asked for three things. We said we wanted to see movement towards more housing supply to try to address this long-term issue to make sure that homeownership stays uh, affordable for new families. So they, they are, to their credit, taking some steps in that direction. We've got to keep the pressure on to make sure that they keep good on the promises. Secondly, for you know high um, uh, impact uh, uh, new Canadians coming to the Hamilton area that maybe are going to you know, get their MBA at, uh, at McMaster and start a new business or work at the hospital, we want to make sure that they were exempt from the new tax on foreign purchases because they're contributing to our education or health system or creating jobs. And third and finally, we wanted to make sure that we revisited the rules around the real estate profession to bring them into 2017. We want to make sure that we have the highest professional standards and the highest level of education because this is the biggest purchase that the vast majority of CHML listeners will make in their lives. We want to make sure they've got the best advice on making wise decisions. I want to ask you a little bit about that, if you could get into some detail about that, because I know the government talked about a couple of those things uh, when Minister Souza was going public with some of these recommendations, including the foreign ownership thing, and, and we've got our opinions about that. But I've talked to a lot of realtors uh, in this area, especially over the last little while. And, and i got to tell you, the consensus opinion I've heard from most of them, Tim, is, you know what, it was about time that we revised some of these rules. Not because there was widespread abuse or there wasn't, but he said there was a couple of bad eggs and they kind of gave everybody a bad name in the industry, and it's about time to clean that up. Yeah, and you know, it, was, it really impressed me when I started this job just over six months ago, and I spent the first part of it really talking to a lot of realtors in every corner of the province. And what always impressed me was how angry they get when they find out that one of the small few in the profession took advantage of, of a customer in that very delicate, expensive, and emotional purchase. And they get mad not simply because it pulls down the label, as you said. That's part of it, sure. But more so because when you be successful in real estate, you make a real personal connection with, with your customers, with their families, the neighborhood. you got to be a people person. you got to stay connected like that. And so they really take it personally when they see somebody else ripping off, you know, a little old lady or mom or dad. So that's why the realtors have called for tougher penalties for those bad apples that do break the rules, doubling the fines at a minimum, and Bill also giving the referee in the system, the regulator, the ability to suspend or eliminate licenses. They break the rules, they're egregious, kick them out. And, and this is such an important thing, and I'm not, I'm not trying to draw an analogy here between doctors and, and realtors, but I mean, you know, doctors, lawyers, people like that uh, know a lot more about the certain situations that we call upon their expertise for than we do, the average person does. So we rely on them. We put our trust in them. We put our faith in them. And it's the same thing with realtors. I mean, anybody that's ever gone through a transaction, whether it's buying or selling a property, uh, the pages and pages of documents, and come on, you can't read them all. You don't even understand the heretofores and whereas. You count on that realtor to guide you through that. And and 99.9% of them do a great job on that. But the odd time, there is somebody who maybe kind of takes advantage of the situation. So I, I'm, I'm, And again, it's the realtors that are telling me, yeah, we need to clean some of that stuff up. Uh, double dipping, maybe, and, and, and some other things like that. I don't even know all the phrases in this. But it seems as if the industry itself is cleaning itself up. Yeah, and the, the realtors um, are leading the way. want to see the top standards in North America, because after all, compared to when these rules were, were last addressed, that was 2002. I happen to be the minister in those days, but the market's changed tremendously. I mean, if you bought a house in 2002, its value has gone way up. So the price of homes is much higher. The real estate transaction is more complex. Consumers are more sophisticated. There's new technologies that we never dreamt of in 2002 that are now used in the real estate exchange or in when you're searching for houses. Social media didn't even exist. So let's get the laws into 2017, reflect the modern marketplace for consumer protection, to reward the hardworking realtors, the, the dominant, dominant side of the profession, and those that are breaking the rules, we, we want them out altogether. Let's talk a little about the market itself. And we talked about affordable housing, and that's a key element to this, but there's also affordability. And and I know that we say, well, this is outrageous what you pay for a house. You know, in some cases, the, the price of a house has doubled in the last eight or 10 years in some markets and in some neighborhoods. 
yet people are still buying them. So there's 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 affordability, and there's people that well, I, I'm ticked off about this, but I'm going to pay it because that's what the market dictates right now. But for those upper middle to higher income families that are looking at houses in the seven eight hundred thousand range, and much higher when you get into closer to the GTA right now. Uh, talk to us about about affordability there, but also talk to us about choice. I mean, is there enough there? Because there is there is a constituency out there that wants to buy those houses. So we don't have enough um, choice in two respects. We don't have enough quantity of homes on, on the marketplace in the greater Golden Horseshoe area, so stretching, say, from Belleville north to Barrie to Kitchener-Waterloo, London, and down here to Hamilton, Niagara. And the other part of choice is we don't have enough variety because outdated government rules have really restricted some choices. So let me tell you a bit um, more about that. We did a survey recently uh, as well on the value of home ownership. And we found that despite higher prices in 2017 and 16 even, that people still said, rightly, it's a smart investment. I mean, you can't, you could go a stock or bond, but you can't live in a stock. It's a very emotional purchase. It's where we have most of our memories. And over time, it's shown to be very wise investment when it comes to prices, as you just described. But we need to do more when it comes to the, the quantity. So let's look for land that is housing ready. It's been designated that way in official plans. And let's actually target government infrastructure funding, water, sewer, roads, or transit, to those parcels of land. And secondly, let's give more choices. Not everybody's going to live in a high-rise condo their entire lives. So let's give choices from the high-rise condo to the, sem- the detached house to what they call the missing middle, which is really good for millennials and empty nesters. There's an amazing conundrum that's happening here. That maybe, I'm not sure if the industry even anticipated this, Tim. There was a circle of life when it came to housing. You know, we'd, you'd start off as a, a young person, maybe in an apartment. Uh, maybe you'd move into some affordable place, a fixer-upper, you know, as a starter home graduate as the family got a little bit larger the family would leave the empty nester you'd move out you and it was the reverse of that obviously you maybe go back to a condo or you or something like that that's not happening anymore people that are still empty nesters now are hanging on to their properties did did we anticipate that and can we handle that blip we we can handle it i think the market can handle it and realtors can give good advice the best advice on you know where a neighborhood's going or future opportunities but I think government did a poor job in anticipating that this would be a result of the policies that have been um, implemented. So you're right, that was always the cycle. But by restricting supply of housing through you know, various types of red tape, the length of time to build new housing, they have something called Places to Grow and the Growth Plan, which basically says that you know all of the greater Golden Horseshoe area should look like downtown Toronto. These types of policies restrict the amount of choice in the marketplace. We've asked for changes there so the empty nesters could have maybe a stacked townhouse to move into and then free up that traditional family home for the young couple starting out. Well, which is what we're seeing. I mean, I see some of the construction in South Hamilton right now, and of course there are still many, many surveys of being single family, but there's a lot of townhome complexes. And and, and, and again, they're I guess they're, they're geared for that person, that, that individual right now that, that still wants to have some land around them. I mean, I can look at our situation. I don't want to live in a high-rise. Not now, anyway. Not yet. Maybe someday. But I'm not ready for that. And neither are my dogs. You know, we, we still want to have a backyard. We want to be able to enjoy some property. You don't need a, a large house anymore, but we still want that. And uh, I got to tell you, a lot of folks I've talked to are saying, you know what, we can't find a whole lot here that's on the market right now. Yeah, those dogs will have to cross our legs in that long elevator trip down, I suppose, eh? Um, yeah, I mean, people will make different choices at different times of lives. I remember, you know, in my 20s, the, the high-rise, smaller condo was fine for me. I got married, had kids. that They certainly seem to come along after you get married and such, and sometimes before. Uh, and you want the space. And unfortunately, we've had about um, almost a decade of policies that have not recognized that and... We, we, we had a five-point plan. The government has listened. They'll move forward on it, hopefully, just to put more choice there in the marketplace to speed up the approvals process. And government has a great ability with the billions of dollars to set aside for infrastructure to say, okay, Hamilton or Burlington or St. Catharines, if you want this money for your water sewer project, let's make sure that you're going to open up more housing choices for the local residents. How do you get the private sector involved? I mean, we talked about the onus being on government, Tim, to get involved in this. Uh, they can't cut a check for this stuff. I mean, there has to be a cooperation here between the, the private sector, but there's got to be an incentive. I mean, these guys are, are in the business to make money. I mean, there's some great people that build some fabulous product, and they've all done some, some extremely wonderful things, of course, in communities as well. There's a lot of altruism that goes on there, but at the same time, 
they're going to say, well, show me a business case why I should get involved in this. And and I'm not so sure the government's done a good job of that so far. Uh, you know, I've um, been involved in public life now for 23 years, I guess, between my two jobs, and I've not met a developer who doesn't want to make money. And I, I'm not slamming them. And there's nothing it's, wrong with that. No, exactly, because then they respond to the market. They say, oh, well, look at this. There's a lot of people now who are in their 20s. They're going to want a house someday, and they tend to respond. The problem is that this sort of one-size-fits-all straitjacket we have of planning really puts the handcuffs on developers to provide the type of housing. So why don't we give Hamilton, why don't we give Brantford greater flexibility to build the housing that the local market is demanding as opposed to one-size-fits-all? Uh, I want to talk. i got about 30 seconds left here. Uh, I just mentioned altruism here with the realtors. Uh, here in the Hamilton area, of course, the Hamilton Burlington Realtors are one of the key sponsors in our CHML Christmas Tree of Hope and our Children's Fund each and every year. They are com- tremendous uh, sponsors and do so much great work for us here in the community. Uh, but you guys have got a motorcycle ride coming up, too, yeah, in a couple so of days. Yeah, so you're right. I mean, the Hamilton Burlington uh, Realtors are uh, very generous, very active in the community, and they're on the ball. They give me some very good advice. Tomorrow, we're going to be launching from Hamilton what we call Realtors Care, a Realtors Care Foundation. It raises money for shelter-related charities. They're doing a motorcycle ride, so hopefully good weather. Starting in Hamilton, they're stopping in Brantford, Kitchener-Waterloo, Goderich-Walkerton, and then heading down to Sarnia. It's a nice ride. It should be, and every penny that they raise goes into helping charities that support shelter for the disadvantaged. To date, Bill, happy news, they've raised over $350,000 through this initiative alone. Go to the website, uh, Hamilton Burlington Realtors, and they can get some information about that. It's great to see you again, Tim. Great thanks for coming you, in. Bill. Enjoy the summer. Belated happy Canada 150 as well. You betcha. Tim Hudak, CEO of the Ontario Real Estate Association. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Uh, we've been talking uh, in the Hamilton area here about water and flooding and uh, the damage that has been done. We've had an unusually wet spring, of course, and, uh, well, it's still causing some repercussions here. After massive flooding damage and rising water due to rain, the levels are slowly starting to fall on the Great Lakes. Uh, that's good news, kind of, sort of, uh, but the damage is still there. And now that the water has receded, we can get some idea as to what the damage is. And the cost is, uh, well, it's going to be pretty much uh, extravagant. I mean, we're talking uh, four to five million, six million, seven million. We're not even sure yet. Joining us to talk about this is uh, the guy who gets all these numbers on his desk every week, Dan McKinnon, of course, uh, is a public works manager for the city of Hamilton. Joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Dan, good morning. How are you today? Morning, Bill. I'm well. How are you? I'm well. Listen, we've had a couple of days of sunshine, but uh, we should not forget about the fact that uh, the water damage that was so extensive right here is still having an impact. Maybe you could give us a, a, a brief a thumbnail sketch as to where we are here. Well, we're, uh, we're, we're keeping our fingers crossed and hoping for drier weather. Uh, it's still going to take a fair bit of time for the water levels to recede in Lake Ontario, and uh, Environment Canada has indicated that we're probably still looking at several more weeks. And uh, I think it's probably difficult for them to you know make statements with a great deal of confidence because it really does depend on the weather, the the type of weather systems that we've been seeing through the spring is uh, they, they've been very large and covering a lot of the lake, uh, the Great Lakes watershed, and that's that's why we're seeing so much of the so much so many of the issues that we're experiencing right now is just because of these large systems dumping just such a tremendous amount of rain over the, the watershed. So um, I, I know that they are trying to put more water over the dam down around Cornwall to help alleviate some of the uh, some of the issues uh, with the, the water levels here, but uh, they can only do the, that so fast because if they do that too quickly, they'll start to create more problems downstream in Quebec. So um, I think we're still around 60 or 70 centimeters higher than we were this time last year. A uh, portion of the waterfront trail between Coots Paradise and Princess Point is still underwater. So we still can't even get in to assess uh, some of these areas as far as how we're going to uh, repair them when uh, when the water levels do go down because it's going to take some time before they do recede. Dan, on a personal level, this is you got to be wondering about what's going on here. I mean, you know, one of the first things that got thrown onto your lap, of course, was the Claremont Access, the retaining wall, and the problems there. And that was obviously to a certain extent caused by weather and water, et cetera. And now you've got this flooding, which is going on in different parts. I mean, we tend to think of the Waterfront Trail, but there's a number of other areas that are affected by this. There's got to be a little part of you in the back of your head that say, why me, Lord? But, I mean, I, you know, this is all on your desk right now. It's a pretty ominous task. Well, I think I, uh, I think I went into this eyes wide open. It'll be another month and a half. I'll be coming up to my first anniversary in the position. And, you know, my background of water, I think, prepared me for this. Uh, you know, I, <laughs> I, I think that uh, people, 
you know, they, they may not appreciate that, that climate change isn't kind of a burning platform where, uh, you know, we all get uh, we all get on board to make some dramatic change. It's been happening for a long period of time. And, you know, from my experience, I really saw the, 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 the real punctuation of it uh, back in 2004 when we started having some of these flooding events. And, you know, the wet weather that we've experienced this year is a little different than the way that climate change experts would describe what we could expect to see because it's usually long periods of drought punctuated by really torrential downpours. And, we haven't had the, the the drought this year. We've just had lots and lots of rain. So I, you know, it's not it's not completely characteristic of what you would think with uh, climate change. But certainly in my books, it's uh, it's just another one of those facets of climate change that's here. We have to deal with it. It's uh, climate change is already costing us a lot of money, and uh, we're just going to have to continue to find ways to to roll with it and be more resilient and and, and build more resilient in- infrastructure that. You know, I guess uh, lives more in harmony with uh, nature than trying to hold it back. And uh, so we're, we're, we're learning as we go here, but it, it is becoming an extraordinarily expensive proposition. Well, I know. I mean, a lot of people, when you, you know, word association, when you say climate change, they just think, oh, that means it gets really hot. Well, there's a lot more to it. It means, you know, bizarre weather patterns changing and thinking as this. And maybe the first inkling we've got of this, and it's, gosh, it's probably going back 12 or 15 years now. Uh, when we had some serious flooding in the West End, in the Shadok area, and of course in the Red Hill area, and uh, we heard the phrase hundred-year storms." In other words, storms rainfall so severe that they only happen probably every hundred years. We get three or four of those every summer now. Yeah, it's it's uh, we're certainly seeing a greater frequencies of those types of events, and you know the one that happened in Dundas about a month and a half ago. I think they were predicting for us to get 30 millimeters of rain for, for, you know, the entire day. And we ended up getting over 70 mils in just a couple hours. So, you know, all we can do is, is, is try to prepare for it. Um, it. It's certainly creating a lot of challenges for us. And, you know, it's the way you described uh, climate change being long, kind of hot weather. Uh, you know, there's other things with invasive species and, you know, um, uh, algae blooms in the harbor. So, so there's a variety of different ways that climate change is presenting itself to us. And, when, and you know, we just have to be agile and, and try to uh, try to uh, deal with it as quickly as we can when it happens, and then try to put good plans in place, as I, as I mentioned earlier, to make us more resilient to them when they occur in the future. When we talk about trails, and, and I think we're all proud of the trail system that's been developing and has developed here over the last number of years, and, and you mentioned, of course, the waterfront trail and the fact that a good deal of that's still underwater, and that's somewhat problematic. But my understanding is even the rail trails, somewhat away from the water itself, in other words, away from the bay and the lake, uh, what, the rail trails have been adversely affected by this. Yeah, there was a, a, a relatively small portion of the uh, rail trail just immediately south of Gage Park there that uh, had some undermining occur, and, and that's kind of a combination of just the uh, just the live nature of the escarpment place plus some really heavy uh, downpours that had occurred in the, in the weeks leading up to it. So, um, you know, we've got some work to do there. Um, we've got the trail open again, but we've got some work to do there to, to remediate that area and um, you know, the, the escarpment face is a challenge on its own because it's constantly moving. And, you know, it's in, in an ideal world, it's not the best place to build infrastructure. But because we love the, uh, you know, we love being in nature and we love walking, uh, we've built those trails there. So whether it's uh, the Claremont or the Kenilworth or the rail trail, anytime you have infrastructure like that that's uh, on the side of the escarpment, it's always going to continue to present challenges for you. But, uh, you know, we think we understand what's going on there well now. And uh, so we'll uh, be able to respond to that and put it back together in a, in a safe way. You know, there's another element to this that I know you and your staff are certainly aware of, but let's let's talk for that with that rather for a couple of minutes. Uh, if there's one thing we've come to understand over the last little while, because uh, we can talk about waterways and, and, and you know, the waterfront, etc., but there's a lot of water under us where, where I'm sitting right now at, at Maine and Longwood. I mean, you know, this is this is part of a watershed, and, and the, the whole city, of course, is affected by this. When we get more rain like this, uh, what does it do to the water systems underground, Dan, and, and the impact that that could have on infrastructure and, and on communities? Well, there's there's certainly an ebb and flow to to groundwater, and uh, you're absolutely right. The, the Dundas Valley is uh, it's really an extraordinary um, kind of geological feature that really extends way right into the west end of Hamilton, and lots of uh, different types of soil. Uh, certainly, where your offices are in the west end, there can be pretty some, some pretty challenging soils. You know, when I worked in construction years ago, uh, the water and the soil down there can make it very difficult to, to put in sewers and that types of things because the soil just doesn't stand up on its own. But uh, that also creates a lot of challenges for us is, is just the recharge that happens with our aquifers. Um, not so much in the city where we uh, are serviced by a municipal water system that draws water from the lake, but certainly in the rural areas where 
People have private wells, and we have four communal wells that we operate as the city in Carlisle, Freelton, Greensville, and Linden. So we're constantly monitoring those areas as well to make sure that uh, the groundwater is recharging at a rate that uh, will be sustainable for the amount of water that we're drawing out of the ground, but also make sure that we are managing and and prohibiting certain uh, land use activities out there that might jeopardize the quality of the water as well. So there's a lot of different things that uh, we have to be paying attention to when it comes to the quantity and quality of water that's in the ground, depending on what we plan to use it for. And it's... uh, it's just another one of those things that we have to manage on an ongoing basis. What about stability, though? I mean, you know, we have we don't see a whole lot in the way of things like, and I'm not trying to, you know, get anybody all worked up here, but things like sinkholes. In other words, you know, water impacting, you know, what's happening with uh, already built infrastructure, of course, because of, of the weakening of soil systems underground and, and how it can happen. We see that happen uh, a great deal in Florida, of course, because Florida basically is built on a swamp. But uh, with this water and the increased flow that we've had right now, is there concern about instability with, with existing infrastructure and, and even if not sinkholes, but, I mean, uh, collapses and, 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 you know, big divots in the, in the existing infrastructure that we've already built? Well, it's certainly a concern for us. And, you know, our, our regular monitoring and CCTV inspections of our sewer system are hopefully going to keep us ahead of any issues that may arise. But you're absolutely right when you have a lot of water in the ground and you have an old sewer system like Hamilton has, the joints uh, sometimes separate a little bit. And you can have a very small amount of uh, soil material that starts to wash into the sewer. And while if you watched it for an hour or a day, it may not look like a lot of material going in there. But as, when, when it happens for decades, that water in the ground can make that happen faster. And uh, sometimes you can end up with a void underneath the road. And uh, I think we had one last year uh, down around East Avenue. So we, we see them from time to time, and uh, it, it can be exacerbated by a lot of moisture in the ground because it just makes that flow of material into the sewer go that much quicker. Um, but it, it's also on the surface, too. And, you know, the issues that we've been experiencing along the escarbon face, there's, there's no question that the freeze-thaw cycle is, uh, is having an effect on the face of the escarbon. And so when you have a lot of moisture in the ground and then you have freeze-thaw, you know, a couple of years ago we had two extraordinarily cold winters, and... Um, you know, it's a, it's a personal belief of mine that we're still dealing with some of the consequences of those two really cold winters because the freeze uh, that occurred those, in those winters was just so extraordinary that um, sometimes the, the damage that creates to natural uh, structures doesn't make itself evident for a year or two. And so, again, it's another one of those things where we just have to be uh, nimble and keep responding to them. What about the system itself? I mean, we do have a water-wastewater system in the plant, of course, down in the northeast end of the city. Uh, and, and obviously that's impacted by by groundwater it's impacted by heavy rainfalls like this i, I got to assume uh, that this is this is taxing the system that we have with all the water that's coming into it dan yeah it's been an extraordinary uh, last couple of months i know that typically our wastewater plant which is serviced by both a combined and a separated sewer system and the combined system is the old part of the city where you only have one pipe in the road and it collects all the rainwater as well as all the sanitary flow that comes from the homes Typically, on a dry weather day, we might see 250 to 270 million liters of water come down to the wastewater plant. Um, the average daily flow through May was around 500 million liters, and I think in June we're, we were uh, tracking to be around 450 million liters a day. So uh, we've basically been dealing with double the flow down there just because of the amount of rain that's occurred. And, you know, Hamilton's got a couple of challenges going against us, the combined sewer system, because we're an old community, and the fact that our wastewater plant is in the east end of the city and a lot of our wet weather events come from the west end of uh, the west end of the town. Um, so a lot of times, by the time the rain's physically falling on the plant, we've got all that water that's been collected through the city as the storm has moved through the city, which just compounds the amount of uh, challenges that we have at the plant. Uh, we've we've spent a lot of money down at the plant, probably in the order of three three hundred fifty million dollars over the last five or six years to try to improve our treatment capacity down there. Um, you know, we, we're fairly confident that, that we, our, our, our infrastructure down there won't flood, but the challenge we're trying to have is when we have to bypass at the plant, we want the, that bypass flow to be as clean as it can possibly be before we put it in the harbor. So, but yeah, it's been an extraordinary couple of months with the amount of uh, flow that we're seeing down at the plant. I, I know you've invested a lot into that plant in the last little while, Dan, the last number of years, but I mean, the city is growing. The pressure on that plant is growing, as you say. In some cases now, it's double the the, the usual capacity like that. Uh, can you handle that? I mean, are we going to have to – is the city getting too large for the infrastructure and for the system that you've already got in place? 
No, uh, it, kind of the, uh, the, um, the extraordinary thing about that is it's the wet weather that's bringing us a lot of these increased flows. The, uh, the interesting thing is that we actually were seeing um, flows decline down at the plant because of water-efficient fixtures that have been introduced into the marketplace over the last number of years. So water-efficient toilets, low-flow toilets, water-efficient uh, wa- uh, shower heads and dishwashers. Uh, we, since about 2009, we were seeing a pretty significant declines in the flow uh, going down to the wastewater plant because of all these new fixtures and, and water-efficient strategies that are occurring. Uh, but it, in, in a city like Hamilton, it's the wet weather that will always continue to bring us challenges, but we're confident that we won't have to expand the plant probably for about 10 years now to deal with growth, but uh, some of our more uh, short-term uh, projects that are down there are really to improve our treatment capacity so that we can make sure that the flow going into the harbor is much more cleaner. So we've got about another $350 million that we're going to spend over the next four years down there just to improve our treatment uh, uh, capacity so that we can make sure our effluent is cleaner than uh, than it's been in the past. Are we getting any smarter about that? I mean, you talked about some of the uh, the technologies that are available now, like low-flow uh, toilets, et cetera, like this. Uh, and, and we're trying to be, uh, I guess, more conservation-oriented like this. But what about municipalities themselves? Are we getting smarter in how we plan and, and, and the impact of the pressure that we put on our existing systems? Uh, because we are expanding, of course, with, with new neighborhoods and, and now more intense neighborhoods right now, which I think you would think is going to put more pressure on the system. It, it's, there's no question it's a challenge. Uh, you know, the province is the one that oversees uh, growth, uh, at, certainly at a provincial level, and they dictate you know, how and where you can grow. So what we call low-impact development is happening. So a lot of new subdivisions, you're seeing much smaller lots um, closer together um, so that we're not chewing up all that farmland and, and protecting the green belt. But one of the consequences of that is you do have much, you know, you have uh, a much greater area where you've got roof and uh, pavement surfaces. And so when you have those types of surfaces that are impervious, uh, they, uh, they're, they're going to prevent the water from soaking in and, um and it's going to flow into our sewer system. So that does create challenges for us. Uh, but I think most people have observed over the last couple of decades where we're building stormwater management facilities. So you see stormwater ponds and that kind of thing. Um, so there's, uh, there's no question there's, there's more and more challenges. But uh, I think the technology and the thinking and the strategy is keeping up with it. Yeah, and we've seen that happen with new developments. I mean, you know, let's face it. If you look at some of the older sections and some of the older neighborhoods, especially in the lower city, uh, it was just rows and rows of houses. Uh, there was very little green space. Uh, they didn't take into accommodation. I mean, heck, back in those days, Dan, I guess everybody's drain pipe used to drain right into the system anyway. That's not allowed anymore, is it? Yeah, well, we have uh, separated systems now. So, um, you know, all the rainwater that falls on a lot, a new subdivision will drain to uh, catch basin at the side of the road, and that'll go to the storm system, whereas the, you know, the sanitary flow from the home, which comes from your toilet and your shower and your dishwasher and that kind of thing, that goes into the sanitary system which makes its way down to the woodward treatment plant for treatment so separated systems probably started to happen in around the late 60s and uh so anything that's been built after the late 60s would be on a separated system which uh is a much more efficient way to deal with uh, the sanitary uh, uh material that we need to treat to to make sure that when we put that back in the environment that it's clean but uh you know the separated systems are uh, they've been around for a while and um they eventually lead to these stormwater management facilities, these chains of ponds, and some of the ponds are different. Some treat for quality, some treat for quantity, and really help with flooding. But uh, as they are connected together, it's um, you know the the idea is to try to keep the water uh, where it fell, so that it's not going downstream and causing problems for somebody else, and, and try to make sure that it has an opportunity to settle out all the contaminants that might get washed out in that first flush. You mentioned about the waterfront trail, and some of it, of course, is still underwater, and it's going to be closed. I think the phrase you used was for the foreseeable future. Uh, and, and that's an inconvenience, and it's bothersome, especially now that we're into the summer weather. Uh, but it's nowhere near, I guess, in comparison to some of the damage that was done, for instance, in Toronto Island because of high water levels, and, and even some of the beachfront properties here in Hamilton as well. What, what are we waiting for here, Dan? Do we just need a long break here with no rain to try to get those water levels down to a more manageable level? That's exactly what we need. Yeah, we just need some good dry weather for an extended period of time to help uh, so we can get more water going over the dam down there around Cornwall and to just help dry things up. Well, here's hoping uh, with the uh, summer upon us that maybe we can get into that and uh, be able to deal with some of the problems. Dan, thanks as always. Uh, and uh, on behalf of everybody, uh, congrats and uh, continue good luck to you and your staff for the great work that you're doing to try to, to deal with some of these issues right now. And we'll stay in touch over the next couple of weeks. I appreciate the time today. 
My pleasure. Take care. That's uh, Dan McKinnon, of course, the uh, manager of public works for the city of Hamilton. And and it's unfortunate, that, for instance, here in the waterfront trail here in the you know down by Coots, that there are still some problems because of the uh, the excess water levels. But uh, uh, you know there are people here with flooded basements that are dealing with issues. And I saw some shots over the weekend too about uh, Toronto Island and uh, you know people live over there. And it's uh, it's become a real problem on the the lakeshore, and not just here in the uh, Hamilton Toronto area, but it's uh, going around all around the Great Lakes right now. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM nine hundred CHML. The uh, story back home here that the Canadian government is going to apologize to Omar Carter. Now we're going to talk about the Prime Minister's visit just after ten thirty this morning, but let's let's get onto that other topic about Carter uh, because uh, this is a story that, of course, has been on our minds for quite some time right now. Omar Carter, uh, of course, was the uh, Canadian-born individual who spent 10 years in Guantanamo Bay, and uh, much to the chagrin of uh, some civil rights advocates who feel that he was a child soldier and should have been treated as such. I mean, we can go over some of the elements of the case, and I'm sure we will. But uh, there is uh, outrage on social media today about the fact that the Canadian government apparently will apologize to Omar Carter uh, over his time in Guantanamo Bay, and uh, there could be as much as a settlement of about $10.5 million. Some are suggesting this is a government caving in. Others are suggesting that there are some legal ramifications of this, and the government is simply responding to a lawsuit. Uh, let's try to sift through some of the rhetoric and the bombast of social media and try to get to the, some factual information about this. And to that end, uh, we're pleased to welcome to the program Jordan Donich, criminal lawyer with Donich Law, who joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, try to uh, make some sense out of uh, a number of things that have come at us in the last 24 hours about this. Jordan, welcome to the program. Good to have you with us today. Great. Thanks for having me. Let's 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 try to, about some illegal issues here, too. And I know that can be boring for some people, but the law is the law, and those are laws that are in place for quite some time. Uh, Omar Carter and, and, and what he's gone through uh, in the judicial system right now and, and how that is implied. Uh, uh, he was convicted by a military tribunal. Does that ha- carry the same weight as, as a court of law? Is it, in fact, a court of law? Well, it, it, it is a tribunal, so no, it's not the same as a court of law. But, you know, this case and this settlement really isn't about the conviction, okay? Uh, what this is about is how that conviction even came about, the process. And that's what this particular uh, lawsuit is about. And and that's a key element that seems to have been left out of an awful lot of people's uh, opinions that have been expressed over this over the last little while, that he was a convicted terrorist, a convicted murderer. Uh, what seems to be lost in this discussion was, uh, as you mentioned, uh, the, uh, the, the, the way in which that uh, conviction, which was based on a, uh, we are told, a confession, the, the way in which it was obtained uh, through coercion, we're told, through terror, through uh, through a number of different items like this. Uh, let, let's talk about that process and the impact that has on the quote-unquote uh, verdict. Yeah, so that's what everyone has to remember here, right? We, we, we have to take a step before this quote-unquote conviction, right? So if you, if you start thinking after that, your brain thinks a bit differently. But if you go and let's assume there's no conviction for a second, right? How did they get there, right? What was the process used to even convict this person? And, and, and he, you know, he admitted to, allegedly admitted to some of these actions, you know, for the sole purpose of, ex- of escaping torture, right? And that's the problem here. Was this process voluntary? And the reason I think the Canadian government is settling this matter is probably because, probably for the same reason anyone else settles something, and, and it's because you probably did something wrong, or you don't want someone, or you don't want everyone to know uh, what fully transpired. Does this bring back memories? Because I see a lot of similarities, uh, Jordan, between this and the Mayor case from some years ago. Different set of circumstances, but once again, uh, a Canadian who was, uh, as it turned out, wrongfully uh, pointed as a, as a terrorist. Uh, was was brought into custody, was tortured mercilessly by authorities with Canadian knowledge, etc., and spent some time, of course, incarcerated as a result of that. And and as a result of that, of course, when those uh, those facts finally came to light, uh, he also uh, received a pardon and a substantial amount of money, like uh, from from the Canadian government uh, for the actions and for their their part in in those activities. Uh, do you see some similarities here? Well, of course, right? I mean, there no doubt are similarities. I mean, they're different in, in, in their obvious respects. But the point is the same, right? Why do we have rights and freedoms? Why do we have a charter? Why do we have protections if the government the, that's supposed to protect us can just circumvent it whenever they want? 
Why does it exist if they can just get around it? And that's what this is about. It's about ensuring uh, and, and letting the public know that there is a high cost for our government in getting it wrong. So let's let's talk about the confession. And, and we found out after the fact, uh, yes, he did sign a confession, but we found out after the fact that there were things like sleep deprivation. We're told that there were other uh, torturous uh, methodologies that were used. And we all, I guess, Jordan, by this time, have heard some of the stories about Guantanamo Bay and some of the activities that went on there. Uh, the intimidation, uh, the, the physical beatings, the mental uh, torture that went on. Uh, the intimidation with with mad dogs. I mean, we've seen some horrific pictures about that and some of the other prisons uh, that uh, the U.S. has used uh, during what they call wartime activities such as this. Talk to us about the impact that that has from a judicial standpoint when you look at a, a confession from an individual and how that confession may have been obtained. So, you know, the question is, was the confession voluntary, right? So, so let's assume everything that happened um, happened here in, in Canada. Right, and how how would it be handled here in Canada? Would this have even happened here in Canada? Probably not. The point is, though, is it's it's a it's a it's a citizen who's who who is abroad, uh, who was a youth at the time, um, and, and our own government, you know, was complicit and in some ways, you know, may have indirectly endorsed um, the tactics used to to elicit the confession uh, the the uh, the confession by their you know closest ally, the United States. So time and place, of course, come into this. And, and I know that an awful lot of people's opinions uh, and, and views of this are going to be colored by the, the horrific circumstances. Yes, an American uh, medic was killed, another was blinded by this uh, this uh, grenade attack. And, and, of course, the contention by the authorities was that Cotter was the one who threw the grenade and caused the damage. Uh, I know that at some point during the military tribunal, uh, there was even some concern about the legitimacy of those charges vis-a-vis uh, -vis some of the evidence that was presented. An awful lot of it seemed to be speculative, but nonetheless, the tribunal uh, went forward with this as well. But there's a term that kept coming up time and time again, Jordan, about a child soldier. Could you explain exactly what kind of an impact that phrase would have on, on this sort of activity and on, on uh, any tribunal or any court of law for that matter? So, yeah, you have to think of... Uh, children being charged as a little bit different than adults. And the reason is children are, you know, subject to influence a lot easier than adults. Um, they can be, you know, um, a lot of times pressured to do certain things that, that, that adults aren't capable or, or, or wouldn't necessarily do. And the law is structured, okay, to protect kids a little bit more when they're charged um, it, or to at least ensure that there's more fairness and scrutiny over the evidence, okay, because they're a child. And because children are subject to perhaps influence that adults aren't necessarily subject to, or for whatever reason, our law has deemed that it's necessary to protect our kids more. Bottom line is, he not only was the treatment worse uh, than, than that what would happen here for an adult, it's aggravated by the fact that he was also a child at the time, and that, and that none of the precautions that should have been taken uh, were in fact taken. We hear about people that have become radicalized and, and who choose uh, to go over to, to wherever it could be now. It could be any number of places where ISIS trains uh, potential terrorists and, and, and they come back here and, and may or may not try to carry out certain acts. And, and I know that we have government officials that do this. But in Cotter's situation, let's, let's talk about that. Uh, I, I think there's a general consensus that his, his, his father... Uh, who raised him here in Canada for a short period of time anyway before he took him overseas, uh, was a bad dude. He was, he was a, a known to Osama bin Laden. He was a, a radical in of his own right. Uh, and it was he who took uh, Cotter and his brothers over to, to battle over there. It was not Cotter's choice as, I think, a 13- or 14-year-old at the time to actually go over and get involved in that situation. The father basically conscripted him into this, didn't he? Yeah, so that's, you know, uh, my understanding of, of the facts. But that that makes this even more, you know, interesting because you have a situation where someone may not have even, you know, gotten involved in this voluntarily. Okay, so, they, so he didn't fly over there on his own volition. He's not from there. He was brought there and and, and pressured by an adult, uh, which means when you're, you're when you're looking at the evidence and trying the facts and trying to figure out what happened, you have to be even more careful, right? Because the, the the nexus from the beginning proves that uh, you know there already are questions with respect to perhaps 
you know, the nature of his voluntariness in whatever, you know, has transpired. I, I like your idea of saying, let's let's transfer this potential uh, case over to Canadian soil for a second. If there's a situation where a 14 or 15-year-old is charged with an offense, whatever that offense might be, capital crime in, in this particular case, what kind of factor is it if, if the, the father or the parent or the, the guardian uh, has that much influence over them? Uh, you know, if, if he's raised in a household of radicalism, and and told that uh, that you know uh, that uh, North Americans are bad, uh, Islam is great, Islam is holy. We must destroy the the infidels, etc. Uh, that's got to have an impact on anybody if they're raised on it on a daily basis, day in and day out. And then of course taken over to to Afghanistan in a situation like that. Uh, when you're when you're as a young individual like that, when you're inundated with that sort of information, uh, it, it, does the court take that into consideration? Sure. Well, I mean, it certainly could be mitigating, right? I mean, or, 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 or not an aggravating factor. And, and, you know, there is always, you know, a defense of duress, too, right? Again, you know, is that applicable here? Who knows, right? A court would determine that, right? But, but if your parent, you know, brings you overseas, puts a gun to your head and says, look, unless you participate in what I believe, I, you know, you're no longer my child or, or whatever, um, that's certainly something that needs to be considered. And that's the problem here, right? None of that was considered, or none of it, and none of it was appropriately, you know, evaluated. So, no doubt, it's a, it's, a, it's a bad situation for everyone. It's bad for the victims and the, the soldiers in the states. It's bad for Mr. Cotter. It, this is bad for everyone, right? But it doesn't mean you you you, don't, you circumvent the proper process. That's that's what this is about. It's about process to do certain things, not about the outcome. Um, not about what may or may not have happened. It's about how you get there, and that's and that's what this is a reminder of. That even if our own, even our own government uh, will be held accountable and uh, for circumventing our own rights and freedoms. Well, let's talk about how we got to this point, because I mean, some people are characterizing this whole uh, story this morning, Jordan, as well. The government woke up one day and decided, you know what, this guy got a bum deal. Let's give him ten million dollars. There was a, a legal process that already took place here. Cotter, of course, had lawyers. He came over here and served the, the last part of his sentence in Canada. Uh, he sued the Canadian government for these very things that you were just describing here because uh, they were, in their, the lawyers' minds anyway, the Canadian government was felt to be complicit in, in some of the torturous activities that Cotter was, was victim by, victimized by. The Supreme Court substantiated that. I mean, th- we've already gone through this process, have we not? Yes, yeah, so uh, that's that's right. The Supreme Court has concluded that Canada contravened its obligations, okay, under the Convention Against Torture by basically failing to prevent and inv- and investigate what happened. So the Supreme Court's already determined that. The question is that, that that's separate, though, right? That's that is obviously part of the basis of his civil suit, part of the ammunition, so to speak. The government could, you know, continue to litigate this, but this is not just about you know the, uh, and analyzing the process. It's also a tale of two governments, okay. And how perhaps you know our existing government uh, may be more likely to um, settle or perhaps acknowledge or, or being more, be more willing uh, to take responsibility for perhaps omissions or responsibility uh, responsibilities of past administrations. But from a, a, a legal standpoint, though, uh, you're right. The previous government, the Harper government, uh, decided to appeal the Supreme Court decision, and that's well within their rights. Uh, the Trudeau government decided to drop the appeal. But to be successful or to even launch an appeal in a situation of a Supreme Court decision, Jordan, I, I was always under the impression that you can't just say, well, I just disagree with it. You have to have a legal argument to suggest that the Supreme Court erred in their decision. Uh, and in the absence of that, why would you go through a long and very costly appeal process if you know the end result's going to be the exact same? Yeah, that's correct. So you do need a basis, right? An error in law or, or something that transpired. You can't just you know, launch frivolous appeals and frivolous applications, they'll be shot down. So, you know, the bottom line is there, you know, there obviously is, are issues here, right, for both parties. And the, the, the Trudeau government, for whatever reason, uh, has either a, you know, from a political standpoint, uh, realized that this is uh, something that probably isn't uh, consistent with Canadian values and is settling it, or um, does not want to continue litigating for fear that uh, uh, more, perhaps, may come out. Well, and there's the rub, and we don't know all the details yet, because the government hasn't officially announced this yet. This is just a story that that was leaked, uh, but there doesn't seem to be any any, uh, great consternation on the government's part. So we we, we assume that this is going to happen. 
But if we could just lay the groundwork for this, the Supreme Court ruled that, yes, the Canadian government did err here. They did not protect their citizen. They were complicit in allowing the torture of a Canadian citizen. That's the Supreme Court ruling. Uh, the government of that day decided to appeal it. Uh, I'm, I'm going out on the other and just asking from a legal standpoint, uh, did government lawyers uh, analyze this and did they advise the government on what to do here? I mean, you're right, absolutely right. This could simply be a political decision by, on a philosophical level, saying, hey, we think this guy got a raw deal. But on the other hand, since the uh, the suit against the Canadian government was for an apology and $20 million, and uh, what we're offering here apparently is $10.5 million, it sounds to me like this is an out-of-court settlement. Yeah, so, so look, the lawyers will advise whatever they think you know, the client, in this case, the government or, or, or Mr. Cotter should do. Okay, that's their job to advise. But it's the client who makes the decision. And people all the time continue to litigate even though they have no chance. They do it for all kinds of reasons. They do it because maybe the other person will burn out. Maybe the other person will run out of money. Maybe they don't want the public to know or, or, or for whatever reason. So it's, it's really, I think, the change in administration as to why this is taken a different direction, because the change in administration is the client of the law firm or, you know, the Department of Justice or whoever. Yeah, the, They're the, the ones that are instructing the settlement. And that's the difference here. And if the assumption was, or if the, if the assessment was, look at guys, go ahead and, and continue the appeal if you want, but you're going to lose and it's probably going to cost you $20 million, then the, the, the idea of putting 10 on the table as a settlement here might seem like a more palatable case. But again, we don't know that. It just seems as if they're... There, there's an awful lot of speculation going on at this stage, but but clearly, this is this is a legal process, and it, it's certainly a high-profile case and a high-profile individual, and there's an awful lot of gray area here. But nonetheless, this is uh, this is the legal system working really as it should with appeals, uh, the decision of appeals, the Supreme Court renderings, and 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 I guess this party anyway deciding that we don't want to go any further on this, which governments, of course, always have the right to do. Yeah, so it, there obviously is a legal process, but what's changed is the instructions of the government to their lawyers in that process. That's what's changed. The legal process is still going on. This could have been settled with the previous administration. It wasn't, right? It's, it's settling now, and it's changing course now because there's new instructions from, you know, the, the governing political party um, for whatever reasons. And we don't know that, and we'll never know that. Is it about admitting, you know, something went wrong? I don't know. Is it about... Uh, saving taxpayer dollars on paying potentially a larger settlement. I don't know. Uh, the bottom line is, for whatever reason, it's it's resolving. And usually parties resolve in any type of litigation uh, because there's something wrong that happened most of the time. You just mentioned, it, i got about 20 seconds left here, an interesting point. Uh, if, in fact, this is another court settlement, as it seems to be at, at first blush here, uh, non-disclosure clauses on this are going to indicate that we're probably never going to get the whole story here. That's right. So, you know, who knows, right? I'm sure we'll get part of it. I'm sure because there's obviously a high public interest, but as to the the details, we we may never know. Jordan, great talking with you. Thank you so much for uh, shedding some light on this for us. I appreciate the time today. Thanks for having me. Take care. Jordan Donich, of course, criminal lawyer with Donich Law. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.